Hello, I'm Paul Scott, and today I'm talking to Paul Hawkins, who is a very, very experienced bond trader in senior roles for uh, major banks. So um, thank you for joining us, Paul, to tell us more about bonds today. Absolute pleasure, Paul. Nice to be here. Okay, so let's start with the obvious simple question, bonds. What is it? It's just debt, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think a lot of people put um, too much sort of emphasis on it being this mythical thing. It's literally just a company or an issuer comes to you. They, if you take it down to its simplest number, they say you want um, some money. They might ask you to borrow £100 and offer to pay you £5 a year for five years. And at the year five, they give you 105 back. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so who buys bonds? Why and where does the money come from? Because it's a massive market, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, just to put it in context, there was £174 billion of sterling issuance last year, excluding gifts. Um, I think the market just for credit is probably running at close to a trillion in size, which might be as much as four and a half trillion if you include other parts of the market and guilds. So it dwarfs the equity market in from that perspective. But the biggest clients are names that everyone will know, like M&G, LNG, Aviva, Fidelity, if you think about it, the, the biggest single flow, if you were to put one flow out there, it is pension funds, existing pensioners, and people paying into their pensions. So there's a, Google told me earlier there's about 11 million pensioners in this country. There's 33 million people of working age. So if you like, just guess as percentage, like 80%, 26 million, on, based on the average salary of 38K a year, they were each putting 10% of their salary in, either by them individually or the company putting it in for them. That you could say that's 4K per person, which on 26 million is about 100 billion of flow a year purely on the pension fund. So that's just one area, but that's the most significant area. Then there's bond investment funds, the Fidelity Money Builder, the Energy Optimal Bond Fund. I think he peaked at 22.5 billion. So he was, he was extremely large for a long time. I think that's now fallen off. Um, then you've got sovereign wealth funds. Norges um, always care and do care and are just involved all the time. Then you go right through to, depending on time scale. So, I mean, I've taken calls in my career from Japanese pension funds, Korean pension funds, vast asset managers who you've never heard of, but might be in the Midwest of America, just like the look of sterling credit and will put an amount of money to work that you can't even begin to imagine. There's distressed debt players, there's hedge funds come and go. So it's a diverse world. And, and the key thing to remember is it's an institutional world. It's not a retail world. Yes, yes. So how are bonds priced? My understanding is they're issued at par value, which is 100, and then the market value can go up or down. So how, how is, that, is that pricing, um, how does that happen? Yeah, if you assume for a minute that everything is priced at par, which isn't actually the case, but that's a, a distraction, there's two components to it. And, and what you're talking about is the origination and syndication element of a bond being issued. Um, what that means is uh, there's two components there. There's a, the benchmark yield, which is the government bond yield, and then there's a spread over it. So investors are literally um, counseled and, uh, about how much they would buy at certain levels. Uh, then a bond is literally goes into syndication, and it will be a negotiation based on the coupon, which solves for a par value. So say, for example, high yield issues uh, pricing, as do a pricing bonds at 4% last year. Uh, they're now much, much wider than that. And what the reality is that once you've priced it at par, if we assume par is the number for a moment, 
Um, as soon as that's priced, the government bond market is moving all the time, as we all now know, as is the spread to it. So uh, the, uh, there are two elements that are driving the price. The price is actually a second. Sorry, the price is actually a secondary factor, and it's only ever really agreed at the strike of the trade in the institutional market. So investors who look for a price. Um, that is absolutely valid, but what they probably don't see behind it is there's a spread driving it and the, and the government bond market. And that's what's making it attractive at the moment is one of the factors is that the, the government bond market has moved so much. Yeah, so, I mean, that's what piques my interest in bonds again, because I've, I've, as a generalist, I've got a vague understanding of the basics of bonds, and I've always thought, well, what on earth is the point in buying them when they're, when they're yielding virtually nothing because governments uh, uh, have locked interest rates down to practically zero with QE. But now QE seems to have ended for the time being anyway. These interest rates are looking much more, more interesting, I think, as an alternative to equities. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, well, the conversations that I have generally with people at the moment about bonds are, if you are an average investor and you are, say, targeting 8 to 10%, let's just say as a, as a number, if you can buy bonds at 12 to 15% higher up the capital structure, then that is a, a, an interesting question to have with anyone, you know, if you can outperform your equity for a lower risk. And I don't think, well, I think people are waking up to that now, um, but I think there's a lot more to go on it. And, and when, certainly when uh, the day before the Bank of England launched um, the, their emergency program, the level of buying of gilts was astronomic. I mean, I'm not, I'm not fully in the institutional market anymore, but people were looking at those yields over 5% and saying, I can buy long-dated gilts. And they, you know, there's a capital gain in there and there's a good running yield. So why yes. wouldn't we do that? Yes, one of my friends, Francis, uh, nipped in and bought some, I think, 30-year UK debt when the yield spiked up, and he's done very well on that trade, so kudos to him. Um, so let's talk next about the importance of the maturity date of bonds, and maybe you could touch on yield to maturity as well. Those are two key concepts, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, the maturity date is absolutely simple. It is what it is. Um, there are types of bonds where the maturity date isn't fixed, there's a type of bond for every outcome, if you like. Um, but if we assume that we're talking about bonds with a vanilla uh, maturity date, that's at maturity date, be it whatever year, or the specific date which is determined at the launch. Um, so it'll always be the same, well, it's usually the same day it was launched in X years. So if it's a 10-year bond, um, I can't actually remember what the date is today, but the 27th of October, but it'd be 27th of October 32. Yeah, and um, everything's set up at when the bond is launched, isn't it? All the terms and conditions are fixed at launch. Yeah, the prospectus can often run to, I mean, one of the things when you start in the bond market, you're told to read a prospectus, and very few people do, because it's about six or 700 pages, mostly of legal documentation. But assuming everything being equal, you never sell that bond, you know your return, and you know exactly the cash flows for the next 10 years, and nothing would deviate from that. So your only risk, if it doesn't default, is a mark-to-market risk in the, in the meantime. Yeah, so this has got me thinking. Um, if people are buying these things intending to hold the, them to maturity, then wouldn't that mean there'd be very little liquidity in the aftermarket? Uh, well, I made a career out of trading sterling corporate bonds and... I would probably in normal days uh, it, before any crisis or in normal markets, a busy day for an individual trader would be 100 million of volume. Now you mm. stack that up against any equity and 
it, it, and a lot of people think the sterling market is a liquid, but it's absolutely not. I mean, market maker balance sheets have reduced, yes, and liquidity is less than it was, but that doesn't, down to this level, I mean, we're talking about odd lots. You have to remember this is an institutional market. So market makers have been asked to make prices in 10 million by 10 million on a, on a regular, you know, day-to-day basis. So yeah. that's the level of liquidity. So it, it, it's a misnomer that. Mm. So, look, thinking, obviously, the people who are listening to this will be people like me, private investors, retail investors, as we're called in the city. Um, there's not much of a culture of bond ownership in the UK, is there, compared with other countries? But uh, tell, us, tell us how we would actually go about buying bonds, and would, would we have to suffer wide bid-offer spreads and things like that? Um, I think if you get caught up on the bid-offer spread, you're probably missing the point. Um, of course, there's a bit off the well, spread. It depends what it is. If it's ten percent, yeah, but it, it's an over-the-counter market, so you don't know the market maker's bit off the spread because he's not going to tell you that. You're, what you care about is the actual yield, don't you? I mean, you could spend your day. I mean, we all spend our day worrying about bit off the spread in equities and in small caps. Mm. Yet yeah, makes sense, but if you are buying a bond, uh, then realistically, the bit off the spread is a reality of the time when you'll want to buy it which at the moment they will be wider because liquidity is low so but to put that to the side for one minute how do you buy them through stockbrokers um the culture of bond ownership in the uk has gone through various iterations um in 2009 um i was slightly involved in when they tried to push the retail market on the stock exchange and they had some success but the problem is, is issue was realized. Um, private investors need a lot more hold hand-holding. And, and you've seen all these mini bond collapses and, and things like that. It's just terrified people. But it, it probably suffers from bad press, a bit like Carver versus Prosecco, um, because it's higher up the capital structure to equity. You've got a fixed return. So your downside is known um, it, it, from the start, assuming you know everything goes to plan. So use a stockbroker. Find the bonds that you want to look at. London Stock Exchange listed bonds are easier because if they're LSE listed, they will settle through Crest. If they're not, they'll settle through a thing called Euroclear, which is the bond settlement um, means. Uh, that does present problems, but there are stockbrokers out there. Private banks are the best, but obviously you'll pay more for a private bank offering. But they will have a full run of bonds. You could phone any private bank and they will send you about a thousand bonds to look at. Mm. Yeah, because I was looking at your, uh, listening to, I'm watching actually your fantastic uh, interview that you did with Tamsin on PI World. And um, I do urge anyone listening to this to watch that. It was in June 2020. And I remember actually where I was when I listened to it. It was that good. <laughs> I was no, it was, it's fantastic. So I, I think I, I'm trying not to overlap too much with that. So I hope readers or listeners will, will listen to that first and then listen to this. But, um, uh, sorry, I lost my thread. Why did I mention that? Um, oh, yeah. So, so the, key, the key concept, one of the key concepts is this order of who ranks where in company law, doesn't it? So equity ranks behind debt in company law. And that's key isn't it could you expand on that point well yeah if you go into a default scenario uh what happens is is obviously prescribed and would be that the liquidator and hmrc get paid out first then it is the senior claims on the business so if you know if made.com had a load of bonds in issues what i they won't do because they're too small but we bank debt that they have most probably. I mean, I haven't looked, so I don't know. But No, it's net cash, actually. Yeah, it doesn't have Oh, right. Debt. 
Mm. Oh, right. Well, if we presume there's a business with, with senior debt, then the senior debt holders have the next claim. And if those senior debt holders have some form of security, if they're a debenture, there might be a debenture on a property um, or some such assets of the business, or it might be a floating charge, in which case the business, the liquidator, would just seek to collapse all elements of the balance sheet and then pay out the senior bondholders. Mm. If the senior bondholders get paid out in full, then the junior bondholders go next then the preference shareholders go. And if there's anything left after that, it's equity. And that's probably what a lot of people don't realise in, in the UK. And it's certainly known on the continent far more because there's a joke in the market about the Belgian dentist who never stopped buying bonds and the Italians who never stopped buying bonds. But in the UK, it's not quite the same, that you are in a more protected asset class than the equity. So, yeah, you don't have the upside um, of an old equity, you know, multi-bagging or whatever that might turn into. But you also don't have the downside because you know what you're going to get, assuming nothing changes from the moment you buy it. Yeah, so it's less. Uh, so the bondholders are taking far less risk than equity holders, but their reward is capped as well, isn't it? Yeah, which comes back to your point that now um, bonds are now starting to offer in a post-QE world for the first time since 2009, well, probably 2011, real interesting yields that present mm. any any sort of considered investor with a question because if you're targeting 10% as an equity investor and you can get 17% on a bond then you have to ask yourself that question yes yes and also um so what what are the minimum quantities sorry on some of these uh well there's there's a little bit of a problem for retail players in bond markets as a result of mifid um, which was basically they, as in a directive that meant prospectuses had to be far more fuller if they, they were targeting the private market. So therefore, everyone just targeted the institutional market. So most new issuance has a minimum denomination of 100 or 200K. Um, but there are retail issues with, with as minimum as one. And the orb is probably the best place to look. Um, Stockbrokers will have a list of retail bonds. Uh, there's bond brokers. Um, people like Mark Glowry are extremely good at that kind of thing of putting information out there. Yes, because I had a look on Hargreaves. I know you said in your interview with Tamsin that uh, people asked um, for some suggestions for websites to go to to properly research this. And you, and you replied that, oh, just Google it all. You know, there's loads of information on Google. But the same questions come up in today's Small Cap Valley report on Stockopedia from my readers saying, um, you know, I haven't really been able to find any websites with the information I need. Um, so I did look at Hargreaves Lansdowne and a few other sites last night. And Hargreaves Lansdowne, yes, do quote prices and terms of, but only of a relatively small number of bonds from really big organizations like Tesco and so on. So where can we find more detailed information? I think you've probably highlighted that there is an absolute gap in the market that the retail stockbrokers don't really understand the market and therefore they avoid it because they're all fearful of a regulatory breach of some form that they don't know what it is, but they fear it might exist. Um, the lists do exist, but accessing them is difficult. Um, and I'm just, in all honesty, there isn't probably a publicly generated list, but I think if someone wanted them, I'd probably start with what's called an agency broker um, or try the likes of ask, ask your stockbroker to speak to someone like Winter Floods, Peel Hunt or um, Canaccord, who are the retail brokers that they mostly speak to. And they may well have lists. Um, 
I certainly know winter floods are collapsing for one the other week. Um, but then there's the agency brokers um, who are intermediaries between market makers and uh, stockbrokers, if you like, and they should be able to present them. So I think it's probably a little bit more digging than I flippantly said in 2020 <laughs> without really thinking about it. But they are there. Um, and the people who have them probably should contact you <laughs> if they listen to this and say, I've got one because they definitely, I mean, I get them of various people, you know, like uh, Mark Glowry and there's NCL and there's other, there's other brokers that just do this all day, every day. Yeah. And also, actually, at the beginning, I forgot to do this disclaimers. What I meant to say was that we're not sort of giving any recommendation or, or, or steering people towards or away from bonds. We're just doing this as a general uh, chat and for information purposes. So it sounds to me like people, probably their best step if they do want to dabble in bonds is probably just to contact their normal, normal stockbroker, isn't it? Yeah, and ask them for a list. I mean, they could just say, look, I'm looking for a five-year bond uh, or a 10-year bond in a corporate or a financial. Um, what can you get for me? If the stockbroker says nothing, then they haven't even tried because they do exist. Yeah. But I kind of, they're probably fearful of sending that stuff out. Mm. Okay. Let's talk about an individual bond then. Uh, now, it's one of the few companies I actually know. It's uh, Saga PLC, the ticker of the shares. I've covered a lot. Um, it's been one of my disasters over the last year or two, really, that just goes down and down. Uh, on a daily basis, but I've actually researched the financing, the bond. It's got two bonds in issue, one of which it paid off using the proceeds of a new bond. Um, and I personally have looked at all the terms of the bonds and the ship loans they've got on their cruise ships. And I think this stuff is fairly safe because they've got most of the cash in the bank to actually pay them off. But I noticed that the 2026 bond from Saga, which uh, was issued in 2021, its coupon is 5.5% at par value. Obviously, the coupon's fixed. But the value of the bonds, they were almost very near to par at the beginning of 2022. They're now down at 65p in the pound which gives a yield to maturity of about 19%. Um, so may, maybe, actually, we didn't cover on it before. Could you just explain yield to maturity versus coupon, maybe using this one as an example, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the, I prefer to use the term gross redemption yield just because it's drilled into all of us, um, okay. the gross, which is essentially the same thing. But the, the gross redemption yield includes any capital gain or loss along with the running yield. So if you buy a bond at par, you have no capital gain or loss. You just have the coupon. If you buy a part bond, in this case, you mentioned Saga at 65, you have a capital gain of 35 points, uh, 35% if you bought 100 pounds or whatever the percentage is, sorry, uh, 35 points, and then you've got the running yield. So the capital gain for this bond, would it would probably qualify as a QCB, so that would be tax-free. Um, so your return is based on those two elements. So your coupon would be taxed, but your capital gain would be tax-free. And that mm. is essentially what it is. But you've got to be very careful of just looking at the running yield because the running yield would be very different the further away motion part, and that doesn't reflect the capital gain or loss. Yes. Actually, let's touch on that tax-free element. Um, so what constitutes a qualifying uh, – what was it called? Qualifying corporate bond? Yes, Qualifying yes. corporate bond, QCB. Um, QCB. 
is in the Finance Act. And if you buy a bond that qualifies in sterling denominated, I think they have to be issued post-1982, um, you, the tax-free gain that you as an individual would benefit from if you buy below par is tax-free. There are certain qualifying conditions, as in it can't be convertible into equity, it can't have convertible features, it can't, um, sorry, I, I should know this because I spent hours looking at it a few years ago. <laughs> um, it, it can't convert into another currency. There's about four or five conditions. Uh, the maturity can't be extendable. Mm. So it's basically, if it's plain vanilla and issued in sterling, then as long as it's got no funky features, then the capital gain will be tax-free, which is absolutely enormous positive at the moment. Why, why would, would the government allow that? Uh, I have no idea. It's in the Finance Act. Uh, yeah. I think it's in the, the latest iteration is in the Finance Act 1992. Mm. Um, I don't know why, but it does exist. And it, it's, it's a common feature that people care about it at times like this. And then most of the time, no one cares about it. So mm. the, the thing that is a fear, if you do buy one, is whether it is a QCB or not. But if you just read those four terms, which are in that Finance if you just type QCB, those terms are pretty clear on what it is and why it okay. is. You can take an informed guess. Yes, okay. So something like the, the saga thing, then, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, if I wanted to park, say, 100K or more in this, um, and I'm worried about the equity, maybe some equity dilute. I know one of my readers says he thinks saga will have to uh, do another equity raise, which will dilute people. I personally think he's completely wrong. I don't think there's any evidence of that at all. But that's his view, and he's entitled to his view. So that sort of steers me more towards the bonds, because you don't have to worry about equity dilution with the bond, and you can get a, a yield to maturity of nearly 19% per annum between now and 2026 on saga. So how do they interact? interact? Um, well, the first thing is that the, an element of that yield is reflective of markets at the moment insofar as refi risk. Now, refi risk is simply that that bond at some point, if they can't refinance it, then they have to turn to equity holders. Um, but this always becomes overstated at times of stress. Um, and what I mean by that is that the bond market does have periods where it's closed in distress. Um, but, but the reality is the bond market has to be open for an economy to function. So whilst we're in an inflationary time, there's a war in Europe, yada, 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 all the, you know, all the events that we all know about, the bond market will reopen. It might reopen at a level that's vastly wider than where it is now, but a company like Saga can access finance. Um, M&G, if you take them as the biggest sterling bondholder in the market, will give them a price. Um, I, I think it's a £500 million issue. I can't remember. Um, I think it's 250 actually. Oh, 250 yeah. 250 to the M&Gs, L&Gs um, of this world can be a phone call. Um, <laughs> and that's what a lot of people don't realise. Um, it's just a, a function of, do we understand this credit? Do we think it's going bust? And what, what do we want to get in yield terms for that risk um, based on what conditions? Mm. Um, if you think about it, it's exactly the same as the bank market. The banks want to lend, um, but it's just a function of what the price is that they want to lend at. Yeah, that's a, a great point, actually, because um, it strikes me that, I mean, Saga now has a very low market cap. It's, I mean, it's not much above 100 million, I think. So, but yet the bond funding is so much safer and more secure than bank lending. Why is it that more 
small to mid-cap companies don't access these very liquid and very safe bond markets because you don't have to worry about things like net debt to EBITDA covenants with bonds, do you? Uh, you absolutely do. So the, the saga bonds, oh. um, the saga bonds explicitly references the RCF and the RCF covenants. Um, I remember some chats about it. I did look at it. So there's no specific covenants in the bond, but what they say is we will pay pursue to the RCF. So therefore, if the RCF is triggered on the net debt to EBITDA or the uh, interest cover, which they yeah. relaxed when they issued the bond, then that would be an event of default for the bonds as well. So all they've done oh, is basically circumvented the need for individual um, covenants, but just said, we're going to rely on the RCF covenants, and if they trigger, we trigger. Mm, so I think there's only two of them. Yeah, the only thing I would counter with that is that Saga doesn't use its RCF. Um, it's got um, gross cash of about 170 odd million in the bank, and the RCF is, 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 is I don't think it's ever been used, and it's only 50 million pound facility. So wouldn't they be better off just cancelling the RCF altogether? Uh, that probably goes above my pay grade, but just because they haven't drawn it down doesn't mean they aren't subject to the conditions of it because it's an available facility at on demand. Mm-hmm. So they would still have to match it. But yeah, if they were extremely bullish, they could say we don't need an RCF. But I mean, I'd perhaps put that question back to you. Is that wise as the corporates to not have that emergency overdraft facility in place? I don't know too many corporates who would be so bullish as to, to do that. I think given the extent of the cash bar, they could safely let it go. But uh, I, t- I do take your point. So that's interesting. But, but assuming then that Saga didn't have an RCF, well, let's say for a, a hypothetical different company with no bank borrowings that funds itself entirely by bonds. Yeah. The bonds then would not contain financial covenants, would they? Uh, it depends who the issuer is. So, uh, I mean, if you think about it, if I came to you and said, Paul, um, I've got a bond for, um, if, if we think about EIB as, as better rated than the government, as in European Investment Bank, do you, would you lend to them? Yes. Would you require covenants? No, because they are more certain to pay than the UK government. Mm. If, it was, um, if it was made at .com yesterday, what covenants do you think you'd ask for? You, you know, you'd be belt and braces on every front to, to advance them some cash overnight. Yes, yes. Uh, so it's a function of who and what they are. But In those that, are very extreme cases, Paul, aren't they? So, yes. Say for a typical mid-ranking, solid sort of middle-large cap, would, the, would, would a bond with them have, have covenants? Absolutely, yes. So anything oh, that, what? I mean, so, I mean, I'm trying to think. So if we take Walmart, they probably don't put, need to put covenants in. But if, um, Tesco probably have some covenants. I can't off the top of my head. I mean, most Tesco issues are seemingly secured away from the asset back market. Um, but then if you go smaller, I think Victoria Carpets, is that? Is that, mm, I yeah. that? I'm sure he used to talk about bond finance. And I think, yeah, he does. I think he said they're covenant light or you know, don't have the same covenants as bank lending. He would be selling slightly the wrong message there because there would be covenants in that kind of issue. Mm. But I which mean, one, the change of control is one, isn't it? But that's, you know, for, for my purposes, that doesn't really matter. 
Yeah, change of control is a, is a sort of a, a relic of private equity days when everyone was panicking about private equity, basically blowing up your bond holding. But there'd be net debt to EBITDA, there'd be an interest cover, there might be um, a security level. There's, there's a whole range of covenants, and, and covenant like did exist in low rate environments. But now, cover, I mean, covenants now are, will be absolutely there and a feature for almost every issue and answer to your question about why small and mid caps don't do it because it's extremely expensive it's an extremely um, expensive process so you have to pay the bond originator the syndicator um, you might have listing fees so that's the reason a lot of bonds aren't listed on London stock exchange because it's marginally cheaper to list on a Rome stock exchange or a Guernsey stock exchange but you, you, you know you're spending a lot of money to get that bond away and if you're small or mid cap can you afford half a million, million pounds to do it, plus the amount of time you have to spend with bond investors because they literally, they don't, let, they, they don't go into it lightly. They will go right away through your company and ask far more searching questions than equity market uh, people are used to, used to asking. Mm, how interesting. Oh, well, I stand corrected on the covenants issue. I, I, uh, I've always thought um, they didn't really have meaningful covenants. So that's, that's very good to be uh, to learn about that. And yeah, a couple of my friends are distressed bond investors who have done incredibly well out of it. And they always say over you know a long time, 10 or more years, and they barely touch equities now because they come across uh, junk bonds um, where people have, institutions have become forced sellers because something's gone wrong at the company, but where there's really actually in the real world very little chance of the thing defaulting. And they seem to clean up on all of these things when they re-rate. Um, so could you talk to us a bit about junk bonds? What are they and are they really junk and are there opportunities there? <laughs> uh, so I think junk, I think it's a relic from uh, Michael Milken who basically created that market. All junk means is it's sub-investment grade. To answer your question, why it becomes junk, if a lot of bondholders, um, if they, they have rules that if it goes below investment grade, they are forced sellers. Mm. Um, so that's what creates the selling pressure. Um, it absolutely doesn't mean it's going to default. High yield is the other term for it. I mean, what it actually means is there's a greater risk of default, but it's not an inevitability. So if you take Saga as an example, and I just quickly called it up now on uh, so most of the bond market use Bloomberg, um, yeah. which I know most people don't have, but there's a mathematical one-year probability default based, uh, which is currently showing at five percent. So the inputs to that are all, you know, as you would expect, an equity-based element, net income, the amount of debt, etc. So th that's what the market's saying that. But is it likely to default? I mean, you have as good a call on that as any debt investor at the moment, as an equity investor, because yeah. you know, you've been right through that balance sheet. You know that those ships are uh, uh, ring-fenced away with their own finance. So, mm -hmm. And also, what would Saga do in that scenario? They'd probably sell the insurance business, and I don't know it particularly mm. well, but there are very many levers. Plus, the, I think the, the guy who's founded it came back with a load of cash. So yeah. he's probably got a load more cash. He's not going to let that money go to waste if he can help it so mm. if he had to put an, another equity check in he would do but can he go to the to the market and refinance that bond in normal circumstances yeah of course he can um but yeah. so so saga is now pricing as a distressed bond um i don't know what the definition of when it becomes distressed but i think probably anything over 12 13 percent you could argue is distressed so saga at the moment what you're getting into is probability of default and then loss given default which is where distressed debt players 
absolutely spend all their time. And what's the probability default as far as a 5%? Loss given default, I would guess, would be 40%. And what that means is if it collapses, you get 40p in the pound. Yeah. And that's based on par value, not the price, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you forget, yeah, you, you're you basically just saying 40p in the pound. So you said it's 65p, so you could quite com- comfortably say that your downside is 25 points. But after a few, if you hold it for a few years, that downside is gone because the coupon's paid for it. Oh, so the 40p in the pound is based on the current price of the bond, not the, yeah. not the par value. Right, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, forget, okay. forget the current price or par. It's just the, the working assumption in credit markets is on a default that 40p is the number that you get. And it's as good a number as any because it's, it's just born out of history. Mm, yeah, interesting. And... Um, and the thing is, you know, it's, it, the defaults are pretty rare, aren't they? Unless you, and it's glaringly obvious if something's in really serious distress. So, uh, I mean, a lot of the skills really in assessing balance sheets and companies' viability for bondholders are really the same skills as a value investor in equities, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, a company is a company, whether you're a bondholder or an equity holder, but your mandate to yourself or whoever you're operating for is is just different. Like a bond investor traditionally is trying to solve for some form of liability, but distressed debt funds. I mean, in 2009, I can remember getting phone calls from hedge funds that are now extremely large and they were buying up debt in daily mail, ITV, um, or all the, all the UK sort of national operators that were listed that the bonds were yielding 15, 17%. And they were exactly like you just said, they knew that these things were unlikely to go bust. They were happy to, to run the slide rule over the company and just take that risk. Yeah, yeah. I remember the only time I've personally ever bought any bonds was when the Royal Bank of Scotland press were yielding 62%. <laughs> oh, that's a good trade. Yeah, which was in about 2008, 2009. I mean, I know people who've been set up for life on that one trade. You know, he's still got them, and it was incredible, really. But um, So these markets do, in the financial crisis, become very dislocated, don't they, or can do? Absolutely. I mean, there was, what, there was a bond on our desk that still discussed that was bought at a distressed level, and we were all allowed to buy it, but it was on 100% yield, so we had to make one coupon. grief. Wow, but that was at the depths of 2009. Yes. And, and there's still a friend of mine who moaned that he went to lunch when it was all done and he missed out. Oh, God. <laughs> Famous city lunches yeah. that last, last till about two in the morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this LDI's business recently where, and that's more, more government debt, isn't it? But what's, what's your take on that, where the markets went haywire recently? Uh, well, the LDI trade was, um, did involve credit too. Um, I think Terry Smith summed it up best of anyone in his no-nonsense way, and it all stems from equitable life um, and equitable life and pension fund holders and and things like Maxwell. They wanted to reduce risk and volatility uh, for for pension funds, Um, and that basically caused financial engineering. Financial engineering always prompts change, but the regulator endorsed it, um, and I think it was all fine and orderly. And the moves would have been okay, but painful had um, events with the government not taken as they did with the velocity of the move. And the collateral calls increased because whenever, whenever an extreme move goes, the collateral call increases as a percentage of the trade. 
Um, so there were two things move, moving there. And, and I think everyone sort of, yeah, it, there's a lot of hindsight in there that, oh, it was, it was a disaster waiting to happen. But a disaster waiting to happen, it always requires a trigger event. And that guilt market move was seismic. And I can't remember one like it. Um, and, and it really did take everyone by surprise. And then them selling actually caused the problem to, to worsen. But mm. would we have all been talking about LDI had uh, Quasi Quartang not stood up and said what he said? My guess would be the vast majority of the population would never have heard the word LDI had he not done yeah. what he did. And so yeah, the, the next shock is always the unknown one. And LDI has been a common picture for 20 years and no one's heard of it apart from you yeah. know, outside its, its circles. And there were, of course, aggressive players in that market. Um, but the, 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 the long-standing listed people who are involved in LDI are responsible. And I never saw any malpractice on, on, on that front. Um, but the aggressive players were obviously leveraging more than they probably should have done with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. yeah. But well, the regulator is culpable. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, there's a good article in Bloomberg today actually saying that um, the Bank of England brought down Liz Truss's government um, not not the markets generally, which I thought was quite uh, an interesting view. Um, looking at inflation then again, we've obviously we've had this big surge in inflation, 10% now, and then forecast to sort of dropped around 7% during next year and then plunge in 2024. So I think a lot of people, myself included, are looking at these corporate bonds where it's quite easy to get 5 to 7% yields or, as you say, much more on more distressed things so could this be a good place to look now um, for a nice income stream um, with relatively low risk um, instead of equities what's your view absolutely I mean I think the, the term we're using a lot with people I talk to is equity like the terms for fixed income investments which like you said right when we began to talk that hasn't been the case for at least 12 13 years so yeah you absolutely. I mean, inflation is something that nobody knows how it's going to evolve. But if you listen to all the central banks, they're all intending to crush it, whatever the consequences. So if they are right and you take that at face value, then looking in a high yield now, um, it could pay you back in many multiples over the years because bonds don't stay static. They will recover. And a lot of people sort of make the mistake of thinking, if I buy it, I have to hold it. You can buy it and then sell it. Mm. you know like like you mentioned your friend buying the gilt just before before they rallied you could have made like 20 30 percent in 10 minutes in the gilt market which is incredible yes so it is actually you know if you know what you're doing you can actually find some quite exciting and uh, volatile trades can't you in bonds not of course that we're suggesting people do unless they're experts Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you go down the list of people, so Asda issued, I think it was four and a half billion. Um, that's a high yield issue. Morrison's was bought by um, CD&R. Those bonds are yielding 15% now. But a lot oh, has really? to go wrong. Yeah, a lot has to go wrong at Morrison's for that to actually become an issue. Marks and Spencer's, I haven't looked at them, but the five year bond was over 10%. Uh, I mean, you ask yourself the question, is Marks and Spencer's going to go bust in the next five years? What does it actually take to happen? There. But I mean, if it helps you, um, I'm more focused at the moment on the product I've been buying is preference shares, uh, because preference shares are in between equity and debt, but they're easier for a private investor to access. 
um, and those yields, some of them hit nearly 8% last week. And that is a far easier product because the stockbrokers aren't afraid of them. So you can get the list very, very easily. They're also, the, the, the dividends are treated as dividends rather than coupons. So there's a taxable element knowing that dividends are potentially better in some ways than coupons. Um, but there's an element um, of a buyback story there, which is, there's always an arcane story in bond markets. Um, and the story of preference shares is they won't count as capital in the near future, which means that they will probably want them gone um, because it becomes very expensive to have issuance out there that doesn't qualify to the regulator. So they will probably try and buy them back over the coming years. Lloyd's tried it last year, but the history is that Aviva tried it a few years ago and absolutely messed it up um, because the, and I, I don't want to get too in the reeds, um, but there's a potential there with them a lot nearer par that you can have a nice capital gain there. Mm, how interesting. And also, I mean, if people don't want to get involved in all the minutiae of this, because it is an area where you need to know what you're doing, isn't it? Um, are there any collective investment vehicles, investment trusts and that sort of thing that specialize, have expert managers who specialize in particular bonds? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are lots of them. Um, so a, a lot of them were my clients for many years, um, right from which we all know M&G, who was generally the biggest bond fund, down to small idiosyncratic bonds focused just on financials or high yield. Um, 24 have got a, a big range, Royal London. I, I, the, probably the one I'd pick out uh, is Eric Holt has been there through the cycle and still loves it, even though he's sort of, you know, pushing on a few a few years. But um, he is absolutely on point with his fund. I don't actually know which one it is. I think it's the Royal London Sterling something fund. Okay, and the, the fees that these fund managers take then are they are they reasonable for what they do, or does that eat up a lot of the gains? Uh, well, now um, when yields were very small and they were taking, they're probably a percent. I mean, if, okay. if I'm honest, I haven't really looked, but I think potentially the most interesting in the trade I did um, in 2020 was by uh, 24 Select because I liked the top 10 holdings but they were hard to actually buy. So I bought that at a discount. I wouldn't be buying any investment trust at a premium. Mm. Um, but if they go to a discount, then what you just need to do is look at those top 10 holdings. So I don't actually like what's in Smith anymore because there's a lot of CLO exposure that I don't really understand and I don't want to get involved. If I understand it, so I think hold, the biggest holding is nationwide CCDS, which is mm. absolutely a brilliant bond. But... Um, there's other stuff in there, but there's a bond fund to suit every taste. Yeah, great. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Well, we've run over time, Paul, as I predicted we would. No, 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 it's all been interesting. Um, so uh, thank you so much for your time. Oh, any, any sort of closing thoughts that you just wanted to wrap up with? No, um, <laughs> I can I'm happily to answer questions. I've, I've, I believe in, uh, you know, uh, I can chat bonds. I always like chatting bonds. I'll chat to anyone about them. Great. And, oh, I didn't mention your Twitter handle, which is, uh, well, you tell me, Alpha, Hawkeye. Oh, good question. Uh, it's, oh, it's Hawkeye underscore 74. That's it. Um, I follow you on Twitter, so um, other people can as well. Brilliant. Well, let's wrap it up there, Paul. Thanks so much. This has been really, really interesting, and uh, I hope we can chat again at some point in future. Pleasure. Nice to chat. Great. Thanks, Paul. Bye for now. Bye.